Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity, this privilege that it is to hear your word proclaimed. Lord, so many right now are in areas where it is a, it is a crime. It is against the law for your word to be preached. And we thank you, O oh Lord, that we are in a position to hear your word. So Lord, would you please give us eyes that we may see, ears that we may hear and behold the wonderful things found according to your word. Father, would you teach us today? Teach us from your word. May your word impact our lives and hearts in a way that help us to live boldly and unashamedly for you. Thank you for this time today. In Jesus' name, amen. We live long enough, one of the aspects that you will face is that of compromise. Compromise rears itself in a number of different ways. And one of the ways it displays itself is in that of relationships. At one time, you may have said you weren't going to do something, but find yourself changing your mind. Others may compromise with friendships, some with even who you date, some with their spouses. You may specifically have your mind upon something, however, because you are considering how the other person may feel you go along with the other person's suggestion. Some of you may be thinking even right now, you want to eat a specific meal after service, but because your spouse or friend wants tacos instead of hamburgers, you proceed with what they suggest. You may want a specific car or an article of clothing, but you compromise because of some other factors involved. Now, in some cases, you may even look at this as sacrificial and admirable because of the results they produced. And these may be seen as minor, but there are some times when compromise can present a great danger. It can come at a cost. It could damage the relationship you have with others, and it could fracture the relationship you have with God. One compromising decision could lead to having eternal separation and judgment from God. Turn with me now to Revelation chapter 2 in verses 12 through 17. Revelation chapter 2, in verses 12 through 17. And in this passage, the apostle John gives us three angles when addressing the church in Pergamum in order to help churches everywhere beware of compromising. He does this by giving the church acclamation in verses 12 through 13. He gives them some adjustments in verses 14 through 15. And lastly, he gives some admonitions in verses 16 through 17. So just to recap, acclamation in verses 12 through 13, some adjustments in verses 14 through 15, and some admonitions in verses 16 through 17. Read with me as I read aloud Revelation chapter 2, verse, starting at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. 
and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Amen. Verse 12. The Apostle John begins writing what has been his standard so far in these messages. He begins, and to the angel. The word angel refers to that of a messenger. Now, some believe this could be a human messenger, referring to a pastor, while others have seen this as a transcendent power who carries out tasks or missions for God. Nevertheless, John writes to the angel of the church or the congregation of called out believers. Where? He says in Pergamum. Now, Pergamum was an important city in Northwest Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey. Some say it was the most important place in Asia. It was the center of several cults and popular figures, such as Zeus Sotir, who had famous temples dedicated to him. Great buildings were erected, and it was known as the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It had elaborate architecture, and it was the site of the temple of the Greco-Roman god of medicine and healing. The best hospital in the world. So one may be deceived in thinking. You walk in, in a matter of seconds, folks would believe that they were healed. It was the center of where loyalty was pledged to the emperor. This city was believed to be one of the first to build a temple dedicated to the worship of a living ruler. They would celebrate these rulers. They would worship the imperial family with festivals, singing, cheering, along with a parade for the emperor. It's like Mardi Gras all the time. Striking similarities that we have today. John is instructed to write. He is about to give instructions from who? He says, the words of him. These are direct words coming from Jesus. John, you write this down. Notice how Jesus describes himself. He is described as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword or double-edged sword. Now, how do we know this is Jesus? Earlier, John identified this is Christ back in chapter 1 in verse 16. But what is significant about the usage of sword here? Swords were typically used to slash the enemy. It was a symbol of Roman justice. 
but also it could be used as a reference to judgment. Due to the background of this city, Jesus could be indicating, I am the true judge, not Roman officials. Ultimate power and superiority belong to God and no one will ever change it. Verse 13, Jesus says, I know where you dwell. The all-knowing King of Kings says to this church, I know. Even when you think something is done in the dark and no one else is present, Jesus is watching. He is intimately aware of what takes place within his church. He knows what is even going on right here and right now. He knows where you dwell. He says, I know where you live. It isn't a mystery to me. And where do they dwell exactly? Well, he tells us where Satan's throne is. Now, some of you may think America is rough. Some more of you may think that D.C. is rough. But Jesus says this church resides where Satan's throne is. The adversary, the one who accuses the brethren. This church was located where Satan's seat is. Now, a throne illustrates someone who is powerful. It is symbolic for royal government and may refer to a king's royal as judge. Satan is powerful, family. So to hear someone say, we bind Satan or any of that, is very interesting. This is a place where evil takes place. Now, this should give us some encouragement. You say, how, did, how, how is this giving us some encouragement? We may look upon life as hard. We may look upon life as tough and unbearable. But yet, Jesus knows the world, the culture, the city, the place where we reside in, and, and just he knows that the cults that exist. He knows we live in a society where it seems like Satan is gaining an advantage over the church. But Jesus is taking names. Temples were erected, cults were plenty, yet this church, Jesus says, you hold fast my name. This church was faithful. They hold fast. They cling tightly. They hold a firm grip to what? Jesus says, my name. Despite the challenges that this church faced, this church was unashamed of the name of Jesus. They proclaimed the name of Jesus. They boasted loudly of the name of Jesus. Imagine them on the streets evangelizing at the metro stops. They boldly proclaim Jesus. But look what else. He says, and you did not deny my faith or your faith in me. So not only did they cling tightly to the name of Jesus, they did not refuse or reject the faith. They did not reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Something to draw out here. Notice Jesus says, my faith, which demonstrates to us faith is a gift coming from God. It is not something that we derive or come up with. They did not deny the gospel. They did not reject the faith. Even though they were in this evil place, they were faithful to Christ and faithful to the gospel. They persevered in the face of opposition. He continues with, even in the days of Antipas, a lot of acclamation is due. You hold fast, 
You do not deny the faith, even in the days or the period of Antipas. Now, who is Antipas? Antipas was, notice, my faithful witness. The word for witness in the Greek is martyr. He was killed for professing Jesus Christ before an unbelieving world. Antipas was a faithful witness. He was reliable. He was trustworthy. He was someone who could be called upon in the time of need, despite whatever challenges he may face. Can this be said of us as well? Will we be bold witnesses of Christ, willing to forsake all for his namesake? Will we be known on that great day as faithful or reliable to the Lord? How does this look in your everyday lives? May this be a prayer of ours this week. Lord, help me to see the areas where I haven't been faithful to you and help me so that I will be a bold witness of the name of Christ in the face of opposition. Antipas was a witness. He was faithful, but he was one who was killed or murdered among you where Satan dwells. Now, Pergamum is named as the seat of satanic power. Satan made his residence in Pergamum. This is his hometown. In this place, Christians were expected to sacrifice to the gods who had been honored in the area because of local religious tradition. Refusing to sacrifice to the emperor, the pagan gods, and the political system there could end with believers being called to account by Roman authorities and persecution. There was definitely a clash between church and state. No political party there could make a claim on being the party of Christ. Now, many would say, they wouldn't, be, they wouldn't mind be a part, being a part of this church. Oh, they held fast to the truth. They had faithful witnesses among them. But this church needed some adjustments. Look with me now in verse 14 and 15. Verse 14. Typically, when we see renderings like you were dead in your sins and your trespasses, but God. This is normally a hallelujah moment, amen? amen? However, this occurrence is not one of those times. Look at what Jesus says. He says, but I have a few things against you. This is a change of course, a detour, a pulling over at a rest stop. You are driving on the road trip and you are good on the highway until someone says, can you pull over? I got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> the wording here demonstrates an intense disdain because of some sin being allowed or tolerated in the church. It is divine opposition, an internal battle within the church. And what was it? Jesus says, you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. There are some members in this congregation who hold, who hold tightly. It's not a weak grasp. It is an adhering tightly, committed to the teaching of Balaam. Now, the question is, who is Balaam, and where is he mentioned? What does he teach? Balaam is the prototype of false teachers who betray and corrupt believers into compromise. Balaam was a magician, a soothsayer, found in Joshua chapter 13, 
who was summoned by the Moabite king Balak to curse God's people before they entered Canaan. He would waver when asked by Balak to curse the Israelites, but finally agreed to go when the Lord instructed him to go to Balak, uttering only blessings upon God's people in Numbers 22 and 23. He is mentioned as one who taught for selfish gain or money in Jude 11. He loved gain from wrongdoing in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 15. He distributed curses in Joshua 24, and he led the people of Israel in the wrong direction in Numbers 31 and verse 16. Balaam was a false teacher. Most likely, as well, it wouldn't be surprising if he threw in there some healings as well due to the capital of the city. False teaching focuses on the temporary family. Jesus focuses on the eternal. This is the first of four problems affecting Pergamum. The first was there are false teachers affecting Pergamum. They were in it for the money. They were greedy. They were displaying covetousness and materialism. I'm going to preach what you want to hear, and we'll do this when you sow a seed of $100. I will pronounce blessings upon you when you give $10. You will be blessed when you give me 1000 and the Lord will give you 10000 in return. Family, we are in an age where preachers tempt believers to love money. This isn't only for biblical times, as it is happening today as well. I recall a pastor who told his congregation to take out their offering envelopes, hold it in the air, and say, money cometh to me right now. This was 2005. This was not new. A man one day came to a pastor and said, Pastor, when I was making about 30000 a year, I'd give generously to the Lord. I'm making around 120000 now, and I don't have anything to give to the Lord. Would you pray for me? The pastor said, Let's pray. Lord, would you please take this brother back to 30000 a year so that he can start giving again? The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. This is the first problem that they face. They also had a second problem going on, and that was an idolatry problem. He also says in verse 14, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. A stumbling block, or basically a temptation to sin, before the sons of Israel, or children of God. He told Balak, listen, if you want to defeat Israel, get the people to worship Baal. Get them to eat things sacrificed to idols. This took place in Israel, but it also took place in the church of Pergamum as well. Eat food sacrificed to idols. This probably refers to the meat eaten at the pagan feast rather than sold in the open market after being offered to idols. This feast would involve honoring the emperor or government official or other deities indulging in idolatry and immoral activities. This church had some who were beginning to tolerate certain idolatrous practices in their midst. Eating meat in idols' temples was what Paul confronted in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This equated to spiritual idolatry. When one has made an idol out of something, in essence, you have given it the love you should be giving to your creator. 
this created thing, this human construct or ideology is more important than what God says. Eating things sacrificed to idols means they were eating things that were offered to idols as an act of worship. But for the Christian, we are to worship no one and nothing but God. And we see this in our culture today. The worship of money, political ideologies, sex, power, entertainment, people, feelings, and comfort. If they would only do this, then they would be right in my eyes. And many would like to equate this to the devil. However, we don't need the devil's help when it comes to idolatry. In fact, even good things can become idols. Who or what are our idols? A young man had gone to seminary or pastoral training school, determined to become a pastor. He was married, had been taught good doctrine, and had many opportunities to teach in his local church. Now, while in seminary, he was determined to be at the top of the class. He would study late night, rise up at the crack of dawn to show how much he was dedicated to being a pastor and ministry. This young man, for over three years, would do this day in and day out, constantly reading and seeking good grades. Now, this brother was married. And one day, as he, after those three years was up, after he was, as he was preparing for graduation, he noticed his books on the bed. He went over and looked at his seminary books and found a letter sticking out. It said, for years, you have devoted yourself to studying and spending time with dead theologians. You have made a tremendous sacrifice. Yet, you have idolized the outer ministry and accolades and neglected the inner ministry of your wife and your family. Your reward is with your books because it will no longer be found in your relationship with your wife. And she left. This young man had created an idol seeking satisfaction out of good grades and being at the top of the class rather than doing what God has said in his word and caring for his wife. There's a false teaching problem, an idolatry problem, and the last stumbling block is having the sons of Israel commit acts of immorality. This is the third problem. Acts of porneia in the Greek, where we get our word pornography. Practicing sexual immorality. And that's what happened. Sexual immorality began taking place as the sons of Israel committed sexual sins with the women of Moab, sacrificing to their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. There were members in the church of Pergamum who were receiving the same type of teaching that sexual immorality was okay. This same issue plagued the church of Corinth. Striking similarities here, because the congregation in Corinth were tolerating a young man sleeping with his stepmother in their midst. They would indulge and the members of the church would compromise their beliefs, not only with spiritual immorality, but physical immorality. Friends, spiritual fornication can lead to sexual misconduct. Where spiritual idolatry exists, physical adultery usually shows its face in some form or fashion. And sexual immorality isn't new. It is actually one click away. It is on commercials, pornography, certain OnlyFans accounts, fornication, homosexuality. In fact, sexual immorality is even found on many Hallmark greeting cards. But, but this was the lifestyle of many. This was their habits 
These deviate from God's good gift of sex, which is between a married husband and wife. False teachers were amongst this congregation teaching nothing is wrong with participating in cultic practices and idol worship. The temple feast consisted of honoring Caesar as God and Savior. Now, what was an even bigger issue was refusal to participate. Get this. If you refuse to participate in these practices, it could result and lead to economic and social hardship. You could be ostracized. If you don't go along with the majority, they're taking your tax exemption. The believers in the church could suffer financially for sticking with their ethics. Family, these issues can tempt believers to compromise their moral standards. Embracing false teaching, idolatry, ideologies, and sexual immorality have the ability to tempt believers to compromise in order to draw them away from God. If you don't agree with this, you can lose your job. And many of us today are being tempted, yet we don't even recognize it. I want us to notice this as well. The issue wasn't this church's doctrine. It was more about their practice, their everyday lives outside of church. And what's sad and a misconception is many believe that because we got good doctrine, how we live has no bearing on our lives. We can say what we want and do what we want because like this church, we believe in the truth. But who and what you are and what you believe is displayed in your actions. Who you are behind closed doors on the computer and texting on your phone, remember verse 13, Jesus knows. How are we tempted to compromise our doctrine, affecting our practice in a negative way? False teaching is nothing but lies pack, packaged together. And here's another thing. We may not sit under false teaching, but many of us have believed the false teaching of the American dream. Because I believe the truth about God, therefore I should have a nice house or fill in the blank. Friends, we will always put our money and time into that which is our religion. So let us pray. Lord, protect us from false teaching. Help us to know more of the truth of your word. May it be applicable to our lives. Help us to test the spirits. Go to God's word asking him to teach you by the power of his spirit. But the church also dealt with idolatry. So how, what's our response to that? Question is, let's ask ourselves, who do we truly follow? Are you, know, are you known more for your conservatism than your Christianity? Are you known more for your liberal views than Christ? Are you pleased with knowing people follow you or if people know you follow Christ? Christianity radically critiques every culture and political ideology. Do we watch sexually explicit movies, TV shows, or what do we view on the internet? Do we have sexual immoral thoughts about someone who is not our spouse? If this is where you struggle, then let us confess to the Lord. Lord, help me to keep a covenant with my eyes. Help us to get rid of, to put blocks upon those items causing us to sin. We need the Lord's help because the world and the culture around us and even our own sin inside of us is all working against us. But we serve a God who is greater.
And he overcame the temptations of sin. This church followed. This church tolerated false teaching, eating things sacrificed to idols, and committing acts of immorality. But look now at verse 15 at what, the, what else the church tolerated. He got a fourth problem. Verse 15. So you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So you, Church of Pergamum, have some. You have those within your congregation who are clinging to the teaching of Balaam, and you have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 6, get this. The church of Ephesus hated the works of the Nicolaitans. While this church had some who were accepting of their teachings. The Nicolaitans were very similar to the Balaamites. They were individuals following under these false teachers who were attempting to lead the church astray. Historians believe the Nicolaitans were a sect of followers of Nicholas. Now, Nicholas was possibly a deacon in Acts chapter 6 and verse 5, with a group developing who were anti-law proponents who supported so much of just do what you want to do. There's grace in that. It turned into a form of self-indulgence. An all-you-can-eat buffet. Get as much as you want. Indulge yourself for as long as you can. And remember, there's grace. The false teachings being undertaken by some within this church show adjustments need to be made. We have looked at Jesus giving acclamation. He has notified them of some adjustments. Now let us look at his admonitions in verses 16 through 17. Verse 16 says, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. John begins with therefore. The word therefore stands for in light of everything that I have just said. Here's what you need to take away. In light of all the charges against you. Here's the word. Repent. Turn from your wickedness. Repentance is a change of heart leading to a change of mind, leading to a change of actions. It is a deeply godly sorrow towards sin. It is not simply a change in one's behavior. It is developing a deep hatred for sin. One writer has said, the change is radical, both inwardly and outwardly. Mind and judgment, will and affections, behavior and lifestyle, motives and purposes, are all involved. Repenting means starting to live a new life. Jesus says, repent. This is the solution. Take a strong stance against these false teachings. Turn because this is sin. Turn from these teachings because the things I teach will bring about eternal life. These false teachings bring about violations of God's law. They lead to loving idols to which God said, you are to love no other God but me. It leads to not loving your neighbor as yourself. And someone here may be falling into this same type of teachings as well. And just as Jesus commanded for this church to repent, he is saying this to someone here as well. Jesus was so holy and righteous that he had to die for us. Nothing or no one would satisfy his holy and righteous nature. But he was so loving that he was glad to die for us. 
Nothing less would satisfy his desire to have you and I as his people. Following false teachers won't bring about eternal life. Believing in all these ideologies as if they're the truth, that they're the word of God, both political and non, won't bring about eternal life. Committing sexual immorality and self-indulging in any and everything won't bring about eternal life. Jesus says, repent. And if you don't, there are some consequences. He says, if not, I will come to you soon. It won't be slow. It'll be quick. And I'll make war against them. I will fight them. The them is those who are believing and turning to these false teachings. Judgment will be on the whole church, but wrath especially will be distributed to those heretics and their followers. He is making war with the sword of his mouth. Sword would be used to slash the enemy. The same imagery is displayed in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15, detailing the coming of Christ, where it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus says, repent, or there are going to be some problems. You got 99 problems, and I'm all of them. (laughs) Jesus says, I brought you into this world, and I will take you out. We are going to have some issues. And I'm not just saying this. You better listen up. Verse 17. John concludes with he or whomever has an ear. You know, the body part sitting on the right and left side of your face. Whomever has the ability to hear. What is he instructed to do? Let him hear. If you got ears, Jesus says, listen up. Let him listen with the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the one who guides and witnesses to the church. This is divine instruction. Let him who hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to whom? The churches. Friends, this isn't only instructions for the church of Pergamum. This is written to the churches. You and I, those who have turned from our sins and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers are to listen and be obedient in what was said in the previous verses by means of instruction and application. These are instructions because oftentimes we don't listen very well. We love to talk, but the listening needs work. I remember playing a game growing up called telephone. You whisper something to a friend, and by the end, the first message is completely distorted. Why? Because someone didn't listen well. Jesus says, if you have an ear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. He continues with to him who overcomes, to the individual who conquers or prevails, the one who is victorious over these false teachings. John says to him, I will give some of the hidden manna. John, by way of Jesus, says, I will give to him some of the hidden manna. Now, a couple of thoughts here. First, this manna is hidden. It is kept from human eyes. Second, Christ is the possessor of this manna. Third, because Christ is the possessor of this manna, this manna is divine. It is from heaven. 
and you won't go hungry again. Now, what's so significant about manna? Manna is the supernatural sustenance of the future life. It was provided by God during Israel's 40 years in the desert. It also suggests eternal fellowship with Jesus himself, who is the bread of life. This manna would be given to the ones who overcomes. Avoid the meat offered to idols in order to get the heavenly manna that lasts for eternity. This spiritual food is a foretaste of what's to come. Conquerors will get some of the hidden manna, but not only that, Christ says, I will give him a white stone. He will give the conqueror a white stone. White stone here refers to a symbol of victory, a token of acquittal. Overcomers would receive this almost as if it served as a token for admission to a banquet, a symbolization of the triumph of their faith. Christ says he would give hidden manna a white stone and lastly, a new name. Family, names carry significance. Here, Christ says he is going to give a new name, a new way in being identified. And guess what? You and I can have that new name too. You can have the hidden manna. You can have the white stone. Friends, a lot of us have misplaced desires. We are looking for the creation to satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. Some of you today have recognized there is something missing in your life. Something isn't quite right. Every time I go to one thing to make me happy, it doesn't. It could be a spouse, it could be a job, it could be more money, it could be sex, it could be power, it could be any created thing. The issue is we are looking for what's temporary to satisfy the eternal separation we have experienced from God. I'm talking to someone here today. The one you are truly longing for is Jesus. And if you confess your sins to him and turn from those sins, he is the one who can truly give you what your heart desires. Jesus defeated sin and death by rising on the third day, allowing you and I to have access to the deepest longings of our heart. And if this is you today, then I beg you to turn to him. Turn to the living water that never runs dry. Turn to the one who can satisfy our needs. Turn to the one who will give us the hidden manna, the white stone, and the new name. This man is Jesus. We have looked at three angles of the message written to the church in Pergamum that should aid us in how we live in order to beware of compromising. This was done by looking at Christ's acclamation, his adjustments, and his admonitions to the church. Now, let's tie it all in even more to present day. We live in and near the political center of the United States with some of the same similarities and challenges this church faced. We live in a society that places an enormous amount of detail and pressure on Christians to compromise and conform. And if you ain't looked at the news lately, it's coming. Believers are faced with difficulties which has made it hard at times to tell the Christian from the non by their lifestyles, and their attitudes. There's rampant materialism, greed, idolatry, and sexual immorality ever present. And most of us face great pressure to weaken our faith and our walk with Christ, desiring false teachings from many on the internet, television, and social media, rather than the word of God. We need help. 
as we are tempted to look as if society hasn't had an effect on us, we are deceived and deserving of God's wrath. But there is one. There is one who who has perfectly navigated the challenges we face. And guess who that name is? Jesus. That wasn't in unison. Jesus. Jesus was able to divinely fulfill the Father's will perfectly. And if you are a believer here today, then be encouraged. Christ is giving you the strength by way of his spirit to endure what's to come. He said he will build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail. Christ is in you. His spirit is in you. Call upon him and guess what? He will see you through. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for this time today. As we look at the church in Pergamum, who was affected by by compromise, we see the results of that church as well. Church is no longer in existence, so that we know. Lord, Help us here at Temple Hills to not be a church of compromise, to be a church that stands true upon your word, that not only do we love you, but that we love others as ourselves. Father, please help us. Help those who are here who have been tempted with compromise. Help them to turn, dear Lord, back to you, the living water, that never runs dry. Thank you for our time today. In Jesus' name, amen.